Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and I'll be your host for the next 60 exciting minutes. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. Each and every day almost brings news of new government corruption. And now it's been reported that that West Bank is refusing to pay some of the government bills because of lack of due diligence. And there was their probably concerned that they're going to pay somebody who subsequently finds himself engaged in some dubious activity. Pretty serious stuff. And at eye-watering, if you haven't registered this, an eye-watering £280 million was awarded to a hedge fund and a pest control firm. Neither had any experience whatsoever in the products that they guaranteed to supply. But they did have government connections. Guess what? The masks they made were unfit for purpose. £280 million and the product was not fit for use. Thanks for joining us this evening. Tonight, we are talking to an eminent professor, David Edgerton, and we will be talking uh, about David's book, The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, and how he sees the future of England uh, and the UK generally, and so much more besides. And as always, we take your questions live. As you know, TNT stands for The Nation Talks. So very much, this is your show. We look forward to your questions and comments. Now, to our guest. Tonight, The Nation talks to David Edgerton. How are you, David? I'm very well. How has the pandemic affected you? Well, luck luckily, none of my family have suffered from, from COVID, none of my friends. I haven't had to go out to work on the buses or clean the streets or to work in a hospital. I've been working from home. So it has not been too bad. Good. Good. Tell us a little bit about David Edgerton. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Your family? Well, I was born in, in Montevideo in Uruguay. And my father was a Londoner, uh, a chemist, and he ran a photographic uh, manufacturing company there. My mother was uh, Argentine. Uh, so I'm rather a, a hybrid. And I, I lived in, in Uruguay and then Argentina until I was 11 came to England uh, then and went to school here and uh, to university as well. And I've been here ever since. You went from university to university. As a student, then you moved to, how did that work? That's right. I, I, uh, I, I did a PhD and, um, and before I, I, I'd finished, I, I went to teach at the University of Manchester to teach the economics of science and technology, as I recall. Oh, that was 1984, a long time ago. <laughs> well, it was, it was a very interesting moment. It was the, um, the autumn term of 1984, so we were in the middle of the miners' strike. And at that time, I lived uh, in Liverpool uh, while I was looking for a place in Manchester. And I lived in Everton in a, in a tower block that was mostly empty. It's freezing cold and it's, freezing, it's a freezing winter. And Liverpool was a, was a place in, in, in decline. It was, uh, it was a mess. I remember. There was a, a, a guard, a police guard on the chip shop around the corner from us. It was the local lads were, were, were nicking the Savaloids. But um, it's uh, interesting to think back to that, to, to, to that time, how, how rough things were in, uh, in England. It sounds tough. It sounds tough. So from Manchester, you, you went where? I, I spent um, something like eight years in Manchester and then uh, returned to London 
in the early in the early 90s to Imperial College, where uh, we set up uh, a center for the history of science, technology, and medicine. And I um, was uh, uh, running that for for a long time, and we transferred it to King's College London in 2013, which is where I now I am teaching the history of technology, the history of science, as well as uh, British history. Hmm. So talking about British history, tell us, tell us a little bit about your book, The Rise and Fall of the British Nation. Well, I, I wrote the book because I was rather dissatisfied with most of our accounts of, of British history, which focused very much on, on Westminster, little bit on, 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 on Whitehall. Um, it focuses on, on the kind of surface of, of politics. And I wanted to write a, a history of the United Kingdom of the sort that a British historian might write about Germany or the Soviet Union or, or France. That's to say, a history that took seriously the army, uh, business, uh, the economy, uh, the, the dark side as well as the bright side. And to get rid, essentially, of the dreadful sentimentalism that's such a feature of most British history. And, and what was your take? I gather that you dispute the, uh, the rather common perception that Britain was, was, was languishing in the, the poor man of Europe until Margaret Thatcher came along and got rid of all these inefficiencies and the place has never looked back. You don't accept that, do you? I, I don't, for, for, for two reasons. The first is that... Um, the British decline that uh, Margaret Thatcher and so many others talked about wasn't quite as was, uh, was described. That's to say that the UK was the richest economy in Europe into the, into the 1950s. I mean, it, 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 uh, it wasn't on its uppers uh, by the late 19th century, as so many of the finest historians uh, suggested. And the second reason is that the, the belief that Margaret Thatcher uh, turned a declining nation into a revived um, which is so central to Conservative Party politics, so central indeed to, to, to the whole Brexiter argument, uh, is, is, is false. Uh, the UK is, uh, is still poorer relative to Germany or, or France, and indeed to the same degree that it was in, in 1979. And the difference is that the UK is now much more unequal than it was in in, in 1979, there are parts of the UK which are are poorer per capita than than, than East Germany. So uh, I, I certainly don't see Thatcher era and the era that's that's followed it as as one of one of success. Uh, it has been success for certain parts of the country, uh, above all London. Um, it has been a, a success for a significant proportion of the population the better off, uh, but um, for the country or the countries as a whole, uh, it, is, it is not great. Is your sense that the, the cake, as it were, the national economic cake is the same size as it was, but it's just that some people have got bigger slices and others have got almost nothing at all? <laughs> well, it's, it's bigger than it was in 1979, but the rate at which it's got bigger since 1979 is lower than the rate at which the cake got bigger between 1945 and 1979. Uh, so we were doing better in terms of economic growth before Thatcher than, than after Thatcher. I know people find that very hard to, to believe, but, but, uh, but it is the case. In terms of the shares of the cake, in the years after the Second World War, the, the cake 
began to be shared a little bit more equally. But since 1979, we've gone back to, to a very unsharing. Yes, I, 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 was, I was struck, perhaps I ought not to have been too surprised. I watched a, a Vox Pop with somebody who'd voted, a Labour voter who'd voted Conservative at the Hartlepool election, by-election recently, and he was asked, do you find Boris Johnson appealing? Is that why you voted Conservative? Why you changed? And he said, well, he's made a lot of things happen. He said, you know, up until quite recently, we had no food banks. Now we've got 12. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a joke. Yes. I like to think it was a joke, but I'm not so sure now. Uh, Do do you think that how economically literate do do you think people are here when it comes to judging these big economic questions? I don't think we should expect people to be economically literate. After all, the economy is a very complex thing. And it is difficult to understand that the budget of the nation is not the same as the budget of a, of a, of a, of a household. It is difficult to, 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 to understand how the different parts of the, of the material economy interrelate with each other. So I, I, I don't blame people for not, not, not being economically literate. But I do want to say, and one has to say, that um, governments are increasingly inclined to be, well, shall we say, less than truthful uh, about, about the economy. And Brexit is a very good example of that. All sorts of claims were made about new economic arrangements, which turned out to be just quite untrue. And, and the claims were, were not made out of, out of ignorance. They were made out of certain kind of political necessity in the, in the knowledge that they were. So I think that, that's, that's like the key feature of, the, of, uh, of our time. That, that would suggest that we rather depend a great deal on the media helping people to understand hmm. better these big questions. How good a job do you think the mainstream media made during the Brexit referendum? I, I think it did a very, a very poor job. I, I, I think it didn't, it didn't explain the, uh, the realities. It, it didn't explain... Um, the case for Brexit. It didn't explain the case against Brexit. I mean, there is a, a case for Brexit, um, but it's not the case that was made. Uh, uh, the case that was that was made was a was a fantasy. It was um, a suggestion that essentially everything would stay the same, uh, except for the bits we didn't like, um, which would get better, uh, and that was never an option on the cards. Um, I mean, you could say that, 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 uh, that there were some positive arguments for, for, for Brexit. And for example, uh, the European Union is rather protective towards agriculture. Uh, you could go back to the situation in the UK before 1914, when uh, food came in freely from the rest of the world, um, made food in the UK much cheaper than, than, than anywhere in, uh, in, 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 in Europe. But that argument wasn't made. Why? Because it implied the um, the destruction of much of British agriculture. Yeah, and that certainly seems to be the case that we hear daily. I, I could have, in my preamble, mentioned how furious the hill farmers are at this um, measure to allow a tariff-free import of Australian uh, foodstuffs. Um, That's right, and it's, it's a very important move, and I think it, it is a crunch moment for, for Brexit. 
because the Brexiters, I and mean, contrary to the image that they uh, project here, are radical free traders. So they do want free trade. They do want the country flooded with Australian beef and New Zealand uh, uh, lamb and, um, uh, uh, and beef from the, from the river plate. Of, of, uh, of course they, they do. And they rightly see, actually, that that was an, an immense source of strength for the United Kingdom before 1914. But they, um, they don't want to, to, um, uh, to admit that the consequence of this is the, is, is the return of British sheep population to what it was in 1914, which is much lower than it is uh, today. Um, same with the, um, with the beef, beef herd. So uh, they pretend that, uh, that free trade uh, implies that uh, the British food producers will have uh, larger markets uh, overseas. British uh, hill farmers obviously not going to compete with lowland New Zealand sheep farmers. It's a, it's a nonsense, yeah. and they know it's a nonsense. You, you mentioned earlier that um, a nation's economy is not at all like a household economy and shouldn't be treated the same. Um, I mean, what's your view on modern monetary theory? Oh, I, 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 I am not going to dig a hole for, for myself, but I, I, I will say this, that the, the argument that, um, that we are, 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 are potentially destroying ourselves by indebting um, uh, uh, the, the, the state to the extent we are, are at the moment is, is, is quite untrue because we're effectively lending ourselves money. Um, uh, I mean, government debt is somebody's savings. I'm 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 very happy that we collectively are, are saving money by uh, very securely by lending it to the uh, to the government and the, the government is, is is spending spending it to keeping uh, for keeping us all clothed and uh, and fed and in work. That, that sounds a little bit like modern monetary theory. I I suspect there is a connection. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Because these folks maintain that, um, you know, government, as long as you have a sovereign, as long as you own your own bank as, it were, as a country, you, you have the flexibility to be able to print. Uh, you, of course, you always risk inflation, but to, to a degree, you can literally print money uh, with the press of a button uh, and, and use that money for whatever purposes you, you require. That's right, and I think what the, what the COVID crisis has taught us, um, and indeed the financial crisis, is that uh, I mean governments can do an awful lot to keep economies going. Um, the idea that we are actually living in a in, in a world of free markets, which are which are self balancing, is, is obviously a, a nonsense. I mean, governments have have uh, interfered in the economy in, in, in the last decade or so. In a, in a way which would be regarded as deeply illegitimate uh, ten, ten, years, um, 10 years before. So um, we, are, we are living actually interestingly in a, in, a, in a world of possibility. And that's what worries uh, um, many people to say that once, once uh, um, it becomes clear that governments can do all sorts of different, different things, it becomes difficult to say no to. And, um, uh, uh, but, uh, but I say, I, I think it's, it's, it's a great opportunity to, to, um, to collectively do things that we, that we want to do. And, and that's why we need to reject the argument uh, that uh, all this debt is, is something that needs to be paid back uh, through a new dose of austerity 
in the, in the next decade. Would you go so far as to say <clears throat> austerity is a chimera, it's a myth? Well, uh, auster- I mean, austerity from 2010 uh, uh, is a bit of a myth in that it didn't apply to everybody. The government was very selective in, um, in who it took money from. It took money from local authorities. Um, it took money from, from, from certain functions and left others um, with the um, same sort of levels of money it had before. Um, uh, health being a, being a case of point, pensions um, being, being another. In fact, one of the most interesting features of the, of the recent past is that the Conservatives in particular have followed a, a, a politics of supporting the old. And it's no accident that, uh, that the old have uh, quite, quite disproportionately supported them in general elections. And interestingly, the, the old have been the people who voted for Brexit. And the young of, of not just Scotland, um, but also England, uh, were against Brexit. And, um, and vote Labour. So we mustn't get the impression that the United Kingdom is at all well represented uh, by the likes of Boris Johnson or the kind of, the kind of politics that, uh, that he's associated with. And I think that's a, that's a very important thing to, to remember. It, uh, um, we have a very particular electoral system which gives a majority to parties. This is in, in the United Kingdom and um, and in in in, uh, in in local elections in in, in, uh, in England at least, um, that, um, that that gives a, a party would say forty percent of the of, of the popular vote a a, a massive majority the ability to do whatever it likes. Yeah, um, I mean it's, it, it is interesting. James Reith is <laughs> is is asking a question. He says, "I've always likened Boris to Emperor Nero." And Britain is Rome burning. How much of that do you agree with? Well, Britain is uh, is um, is burning. I think it is in the sense that uh, uh, it doesn't have really anywhere anywhere to, to, to go. And uh, and Boris is having a very jolly time, having his uh, his his flat done up and enjoying being 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 prime minister and enjoying the discomfort of the of the uh, opposition. Um, we shouldn't underrate him as a as a politician, but uh, he and its party are not actually interested in, in uh, rejuvenating the British economy. It's a very different kind of politics that they're, they're interested in. Charles Smith is asking, have you a view on powerful financial organisations and people influencing the democratic process? Uh, yes, I think it'd be most people's view, which is that uh, uh, on, on the whole, it's a... Um, it's a bad thing, um, and I think it's very striking that um, that in 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 the discussions um, around British politics, uh, the nature of the funding of the political system have become so prominent. Um, there are all sorts of questions being asked about the funding of the, of the pro Brexit campaigns, and indeed all sorts of questions asked about the funding of the of the Conservative Party. And I don't just mean um, Boris Johnson's uh, uh, home decorations. We have a question from Jim McIntyre, which I'm not sure I quite uh, follow, but he's saying, can David give us a quick uh, spiel, he says, on J.C. Maxwell? Oh, James Clark Maxwell, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, he taught at, uh, uh, at King's College, in fact, and he's the, 
the um, the creator of um, uh, uh, electromagnetic theory. I mean, one of the the uh, the, the greatest uh, uh, Scottish uh, scientists of the uh, of, of of the nineteenth century, without without question. Indeed, uh, as well as the, the uh, creator of uh, of modern uh, electromagnetic theory, he, he he is also the creator of uh, color photography. He demonstrated uh, uh, color photography. So he's one of the one of the great geniuses of nineteenth yeah. century science, without question. Uh, was it Einstein who said he owed so much to? Clark Maxwell. I, I, I don't know for certain, but but uh, um, it's very very likely indeed. Yes. <laughs> so, I guess like most of the people watching and listening, um, you're um, very clear that austerity is is not what it sets out to be or presents itself. It's 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 specially directed at, at, at particular groups and leaves others uh, alone, as it were. How much of that featured in your book? Was that a central part of your book, or, or did you touch upon that from time to time in the course of it? I mean, that wasn't the central part of the book. My book essentially ends in two thousand and three with the uh, with the with the Iraq War, so I, I don't talk about that that, that sort of uh, uh, austerity. Um, but um, I, I, I certainly I certainly do talk about economic uh, economic policy right across the the twentieth century. And indeed, the nature of the welfare state, which is often often misunderstood. I mean, the UK has never had a very generous welfare state, certainly not by comparison with uh, continental Europe after 19, 1945. The idea that the UK has uh, spent too much on, on welfare is uh, one of the many myths about British history that sort of dispel. So why, why is it that... Because <laughs> it... it, it in so much of what you said, uh, you 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 tackle the myths, but the, the the overall question is: How do these myths? How are they arrived at, and why do they have such sustainability? I mean, is it because they don't get questioned or challenged? What, what, what is it that causes these myths to become so deeply embedded? Do you think? Well, because they they they're useful to to, to somebody. Uh, so it was um, a very good story uh, uh, to tell about Britain that it that it it went from from being an, um, uh, uh, a place of poverty to becoming a welfare state after after 1945. It was uh, celebrated as a as a great triumph. And once that story uh, is is established, then it becomes a story that people can attack. So you can say, well, it was it was a look. We all agree it was a welfare state, but actually, I'm now going to tell you that. that that was a bad thing rather than a, than a, than a, than a good thing. So it's, it's, um, it's uh, myths have their, have, have their, have their, their uses um, and they, they, they become the, the fabric of, of, of political and other sorts of debates. We have certain myths about the Second World War, for, for example, that, that, suit, that suit a lot of people. What sort of myths? Well, uh, the, the, the myth of, um, of the weak nation uh, that suddenly finds its uh, its mojo uh, in 1940 with uh, with Winston Churchill. That's a, that's a story about the difference between the politics we've had from 1940 um, compared to the politics that that, that went before. It's uh, it's useful for the Conservative Party because it can centre itself on 
on the, on the figure of Winston Churchill, who, uh, who was, of course, kept out of government by uh, conservatives in the, in the 1930s. It's useful for Labour because it can, it can point uh, to, the, to the moment when it, when it becomes part of the, well, the political infrastructure of the nation. Um, it can argue that it is the creator of modern Britain uh, through its creation, alleged creation, of the, uh, of, of the welfare state. So these are very powerful stories that are, that are, that are told. Indeed, 1940 is the, um, is the great creation myth of, of, of modern Britain. That's, that's the moment in which not just the politics of the subsequent four or five decades were, were, were set, but the nature of society, um, the, the, the nature of, of, its, of its ideology. I mean, sometimes said that 1940 was the moment when, when the UK ceased being imperial and, and became, became a nation. And so we tell stories of the Second World War, at least we used to tell stories in the Second World War, that had no empire at all. Uh, that was the context in which people uh, said and say in the history books that something called Britain stood alone. Now the King Emperor uh, or the British Prime Minister or the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, could never have said uh, that Britain standing alone in 1940. They'd have been shouted off the stage because uh, if anything was standing alone, it was the British Empire, of course. It could not have been something called Britain. It had to be the empire. But in fact, um, the great emphasis in propaganda was not on, on the empire being alone. It's actually the empire in alliance with other countries. And first, of course, the French Republic um, until the end of June 1940. But then um, the Dutch Empire, the Belgian Empire, Greeks, Norwegians, and so on. So even rhetorically, 1940-41, um, uh, the British Empire was not alone. I find this fascinating because the opposite, i.e., the nation stood alone, it is almost embedded in holy writ now. I mean, anyone who says what you've just said, it would be regarded as somewhat eccentric. Uh, yes, and worse than eccentric, actually dangerous and, uh, and mad, actually. But um, that's because uh, we've been brought up with uh, those stories from, from the 60s and, and, and 70s. Yeah. Um, uh, it would have been uh, regarded as um, eccentric to say Britain stood alone in, in the 1940s. I mean, one thing we, we forget is the, is the importance of a sense of, of, of um, there being a British Empire uh, before 1945. It was absolutely fundamental to, to conservative politics. Um, and within that empire, you know, one could be Australian, Canadian, Scottish, Irish, English. So, so these, these, as it were, national identities uh, coexisted with um, with an, with an imperial. But after uh, 1945, the way I, I see it, uh, you get the creation of a, of, a, of a powerful British identity, a non-imperial British identity, which is something quite, quite new and something which, in fact, has not lasted very long. It's interesting, isn't it? We have a couple of three questions here. Robert Knight is suggesting that he gathers from today's news on farming that it rather sounds as if in the short term, five years, we probably have to wave goodbye to both our farming and fishing industry. What's your take on that? Yes, I, I think um, that's quite, quite possible. 
Um, that's, I think, the broad direction in which the Brexiters, meaning here the, the people pushing it, the ideologues, have, have wanted to take uh, the country. And as I was saying a minute ago, it makes a certain sense. Um, why grow food here when you can import it? I mean, that was the argument that the Edwardians made, the Edwardian liberals made, that, uh, that the United Kingdom was, was, was better off than Germany because it didn't have to grow its own food. That's why uh, British people ate more beef, lamb, ate white bread, not, 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 not brown bread, uh, why they could work in factories rather than uh, working, working on the land. So the, the, there was certainly a very powerful argument uh, for um, reducing the size of the, um, the British farming sector back then. I think the argument to, today is a, is a much weaker one, and in any case is, is really an argument about food standards, uh, animal welfare, and all these, all these questions. Are you thinking now about chlorinated chicken? Yes, and it's it's uh, it's it's not it's not just uh, just chlorinated chicken. It's a whole system for, of intense intensive agriculture uh, that, of course, produces um, food food more 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 cheap. And uh, it's important to remember that places like the like the United States and Australia uh, and New Zealand are not looking to export steel uh, or iPhones or motor cars. To, you know, really, the only thing they have to export are uh, food products. So this is this is why it's uh, it's it's so so important. So any any free trade deal those countries will will will, will sign um, will involve uh, opening up the, the, the British economy to uh, to their agriculture. No question about it. What do you think the medium and long term effect of that will be? Well, a a, um, a reduction in in the um, agricultural output and the agricultural population. Of course, the case of fishing, of course, is different because uh, the, the the big effect uh, there has been the uh, the uh, closing off of European markets to uh, to British um, fishers, and um, that is um, is just the, the the result of the kind of Brexit that the British government wanted. So there's a paradox that um, that this free trading government has actually reduced the extent of free trade because they want to they don't like European free trade, but they like uh, their fantasy global food trade. I mean, it's, it's terribly worrying, I have to say. Steve Webster is asking, can you say something about the long-term value of the pound against the US dollar and the euro? Uh, no, I'm afraid, I'm afraid not. I, <laughs> I, I, have, I have no idea, um, except that, um, that money markets uh, obey their own, their own logic, and it's a logic that I say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to go there either. I have to be honest with you. <laughs> it could have been more arcane. He could have asked about Bitcoin and, and, uh, and all the yeah. rest. Charles Smith is saying, do you see any advantages in the UK creating a proper constitution, i.e. written and codified? For the, for the UK, uh, yes, I, I, I think it would be a good thing because, not because I think there's anything magical about a written constitution, but because it would be an opportunity to think about the way we are currently ruled um, and to decide perhaps to, to, to be ruled in a, in a, in a different, a better way, a more, a more democratic way. I think, I think the problem with the unwritten constitution is that people don't understand what it actually is. But the British constitution is, is I mean, it exists um, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a powerful thing, 
Um, and to give you an instance, just the uh, just the other day, the cabinet secretary effectively saying that you couldn't change the arrangement by which the prime minister was the ultimate authority on um, ministerial code and whether it be broken or not, uh, because um, in the British system of government, the uh, ministers were appointed, the prime minister, um, uh, by the monarch yeah, yeah, on the advice of, of the prime minister. So that's, that's, that had to be where authority lay, otherwise the whole logic of the system would, would break down. Now, um, we could have a different system uh, in, in which the, the, uh, the, the prime minister were, was obliged to uh, follow the ministerial and that decisions as to whether he or she had done so reside in, 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 in some properly constituted separate authority. All that's potentially open. Yeah, we, we, have, a, we have a saying in, in, on this show that the British constitution is whatever the government of the day with a working majority says it is. Well, there's a lot of, lot of truth to that. And, cert, and certainly um, that's what um, we need to understand that, that the British governments have extraordinary power. Um, uh, and it's not as a power that's given to them by a democratically elected parliament. We, we, we have a, a government that, um, that governs and can only be uh, restrained by parliament. But of course, in most cases, the, the government completely controls parliament, so it isn't much of a, of a, of a, of a restraint. But the, there's a very big difference in the United States where, for example, uh, Congress determines budgets. I mean, here governments determine budgets and just push them through Parliament. Very different yeah. arrangement. I want to take you on, if I may, to uh, your discussion with the um, the European Conversations podcast, and uh, you say that that English politics are in the midst of uh, a profound crisis. And that a breakup of the UK is what the country needs. Could you expand on that? Yes. Why? Why are we in a in a in a profound crisis? Well, I think um, we have a serious disconnection between our, our our politics and the kind of realities of the economy and and, and society. Uh, if you ask the question, uh, uh, what did people in work knew about the world of work? Economy vote for. They voted against Brexit. And yet we have a Brexit forced uh, uh, upon us. Our, our, our politics has ceased to be as truthful as it, as it was. Uh, we, have a, we have a politics of uh, systematic mendacity. Uh, and that's new. I mean, once upon a time, if you, if you uh, were listening to parliamentary debate or reading Hansard, you'd see a serious discussion on points of, 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 of substance between government and, and, and opposition. Uh, I mean, today, most parliamentary speeches are, are unbearable because you know that there is one lack of frankness followed by, by another. Uh, this is deeply destructive of, a, of, of, uh, of, of serious conversations where the nation might might, might, might go. Uh, we've seen that the prorogation of Parliament uh, for, for uh, uh, completely political purposes, that's never happened, at least in the, 
in the recent uh, in the recent uh, in the recent past. So yes, we are we are we are I think in a in a in a in a, in a serious um, in a serious political crisis. I think we're also in a in a in a in a, in a crisis due to the kind of lack of decent information being given by by the television and by and by the by the newspapers. We're living in a. I mean, it's not, it's not true to say we're living in a world of sound bites with twenty-four hour news cycle. That's not not the problem. We're living in a world where it's assumed that 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 that, that people don't don't understand, don't care, um, uh, and can be repeatedly told untruths. And that's what happens. I mean, but people aren't stupid. They they understand that they've been told untruths and switch off. Of course, these are all very very serious matters. You you also said in that uh, podcast that you believe the four nations of the UK would benefit from a a new democratic settlement, and that England needs to have a crisis of authority uh, before it can move forward. What did you mean by that? Yes, I I think. Um, I think one of the most interesting things about the, the, the Scottish case um, and, and the, the Welsh case is that certainly Scotland you know, sees itself uh, essentially as it is, as a, as a, as a nation uh, that is the size of say, Norway, uh, that, that, that has certain potentialities, uh, but it doesn't see itself as a small United States. Uh, it doesn't see itself as a global power. It doesn't see itself as a, a nation which is superior in every way uh, to our to our European neighbours. Um, so I think the um, I think what what England needs is for its political culture to reflect England's true place in, in the world. At the moment, we are living. With a, a, an image of England which is just fantastical, um, and I think one way to, to get us to understand um, uh, reality is if um, uh, Scots uh, say, "Look, we we've had enough of uh, being being ruled by these 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 fantasists. We 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 want to go our our, our own." And my hope is that in those circumstances, that bit of England. That is deluded because, and I insist, most English people are not deluded. Will will change their minds. Uh, we'll be able to develop a more democratic politics, um, and indeed, uh, uh, through that, to establish a, um, a new comradely relationship with with Scotland. As to say, I'm not for separation of England and Scotland. I want a union. Isn't the word, but a but a, but a coming together on on much better terms than um, than currently exists. As I, say, I, I think it'd be good for Scotland and it would also uh, be, be, be good for him. So I understand this better. Are you suggesting some sort of Scandinavian arrangement where Norway, Sweden and Denmark are all sovereign entities, but they cooperate, they have their own uh, collective airline, they have all sorts of other uh, cooperations between the component parts, uh, but they are sovereign each. But they collaborate because it makes sense to collaborate. Is that your sense of it? Oh, it could be. I, 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 I personally wouldn't rule out a new union. I mean, if, if uh, England and Scotland, as uh, sovereign states, decided uh, to, to come together again, as in 1707, I think that would be that would be fantastic. But of, yeah. but of course, it would have to be a union that was agreeable to both both parties. 
And I think it will be, and this is the point, a radically different union to the one we have at the moment. Yeah. Radically different, not just for Scotland, but also crucially for England. Can, can we talk about England for a second, please? You say that if there, if there were to be Scottish independence or whatever you want to call it, that that would be good for England, perhaps. What basis do you have for, for saying that? Why do you maintain that? Because Essentially because I, I think the delusion that England through Great Britain is, is a great power has been deeply damaging to, to, our, to, our, to our politics, to our society. It's, essential, it's essentially that. We need an understanding that England is not so different in reality from, from other parts of, uh, of, of Europe, um, that there is a democratic deficit in, in England that needs to be addressed, that we need a, a new politics of national reconstruction in England that is currently possible to, to achieve. So that, 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 that's what I mean, that there is, a, that there is a, a particular set of reflexes and, and positions which follow from a delusional view of Britain's place in Anglo-centric uh, account of the United Kingdom's place. I think a lot of people in the audience would probably agree with you what they would find difficult to figure out is where the appetite is for the sort of changes that you suggest might come about. I mean, yes. for example, in Scotland, we very often hear about a federal, a federal state. Gordon Brown's favourite pet subject is to talk about a federal or quasi-federal state. Hmm. Um, but I detect no appetite anywhere else for anything remotely like that. No, I, that's right. I, 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 I agree with you. And, and, and uh, I, I think that's a very serious problem. And clearly the Conservative Party is not offering that, and nor is the Labour Party, actually, uh, and find it very difficult to, to do so. So, so no, I, I absolutely would, 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 would agree with that. And that's why I, in essence, think that, that uh, I mean, Scotland just needs to make its own, its own way. And if, 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 if you like, Scotland wants a federal system, I think it, it probably needs to become independent first and, and then enter into that, uh, into that federation. But having, having said that, I say I, I do recognise that um, the, the, the British state, the British political system, the, the English-centred British political system is, um, is deeply conservative. Um, it, it is stuck in certain uh, formulas that have now reached uh, an, an absurd stage. But these positions are not shared by a large proportion of the, the population. And that's where I see, I see the hope. I think there is a radical disconnect between actually both, both parties now um, and the thinking of a very significant part of the, of the population, essentially the young, essentially the under, under, under 55s, the under, the under 60s. They're, they are on a different planet. They are, they, are, they, are, they are not wanting to run up Union Jacks on every public building. Uh, they're not the ones fantasizing yeah, about selling Melton Mowbray pies to, to, the, uh, to, the, to the United States or bringing down the tariff for Scotch whiskey in, in, uh, in India. Uh, these are people who, 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 who see themselves as, uh, as Europeans, not just as Europeans, as, as, as people like many other people who don't have this uh, ludicrous developed sense, uh, recently developed sense of the, of the English as, as, uh, 
the world's historical people with, with unique traits. All this talk about being science super, uh, reactivating the kind of China station with, the, with aircraft carriers and the frigates is risible. I mean, nobody takes this seriously. Um, and it, in, the world, in the world outside the UK, um, you, don't, you don't have uh, prime ministers and, uh, and, 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 and presidents kind of doffing their caps to, 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 to Boris Johnson and thinking, wow, I wish we could have his dynamism and courage. They're saying, they're, they're saying good Lord, once upon a time, we, we, are, we rather looked up to the British prime ministers. They were, they were men and, and this applies also to, 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 to Margaret Thatcher, they were people of, of substance. Um, they were honest, uh, perhaps unlike our politicians. They were trustworthy. You could count on, a, on an Englishman and perhaps a Scotsman's word too. This, these were, this is the way it would be put, wouldn't it? Um, nowadays, I mean, I no serious politician anywhere in the world would, would think of, uh, of the British political class in that. Or the idea of, uh, of, of Westminster being a model uh, for, for uh, it's just it's just a joke, isn't it? Um, and, well, and, well, uh, and the, and the Scots have obviously moved on uh, very very radically from 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 that, and uh, I think to the great benefit of Scotland. But I think I, but I think the the, the 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 British structure as it now stands could come tumbling down very very. I'm still not clear in my own mind how that's going to happen. Because you just said a couple of minutes ago that neither of the two major parties want to see radical constitutional change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the young people perhaps do. How do they articulate, if they can't do it through the two main parties, how do they articulate that desire for change? Well, um, uh, the, the, the votes of the currently young will, will become more important with time. Uh, I think the the Tory party is in actually in the long term in a weak position because it's tied itself to, 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 to a, a demographic that's, that's dying off. It's tied itself to, to a policy Brexit that's, uh, that's going to fail. I don't think they've got anywhere to, anywhere to go. Um, so I think the, the wheels will, will begin to come off. That, that. And I think a way to accelerate that would be for, for, for Scotland to, to achieve independence. Historically, the precedents are not good when people lose confidence in the democratic process. They tend to go for extremes rather than saying, well, let's have a more enlightened administration. They tend to say, here's a populist. Uh, he stroke she, less commonly she, sounds good to me. Yes. Uh, well, isn't, but that a, isn't that a concern? It, it certainly is a, is a concern. Um, I'd say to you, that's exactly what's happened. It's not. It's not a, something we should worry about for the future. We should. We should. We should worry that this is exactly where we are now. That our our politics has uh, has been a a, a politics uh, based on a, a rejection of the of the political system. The, the Brexit vote was a a, a uh, an outpouring of discontent with the. With the politics of the, of the United Kingdom, and the great genius of the Brexiters was to direct the ire of uh, uh, many of people uh, against Brussels, uh, rather than against London, and rather than against the um, the Conservative Party. 
uh, it's really, really was a, a stroke of genius to, to blame, to blame Brussels uh, for uh, decisions taken in, in London, uh, a stroke of genius to claim there's a, a democratic deficit in, in, in Brussels when the most important one was in London. Yeah, we've seen, we have a government that is deeply uh, uh, It's out to effect cultural change. Uh, we see that in its, uh, in its insistence on, on, on flying the flag. Kind of most un-British thing. Uh, I told you earlier that, that my father was uh, born in, uh, in, in, in London. And like a good English, Englishman of his era, he looked down on nations that had to put the flag up every morning and sing the national anthem. That was not something uh, anyone British uh, would, 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 think of, would think of doing. We have a kind of tin pot nationalism uh, uh, of, of a sort uh, that British people used to despise here, here at home. We have the, uh, a politics of rewriting history uh, to suit the fantasy visions of a conservative party, a politics of, of um, directing museums uh, to tell uh, particular uh, sorts of national uh, uh, stories. We have a, 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 a politics of criticizing uh, supposed uh, metropolitan elites uh, you know, for not having the, the, the same prejudices as a, as, a, as a proper English person should. I mean, this is this is this is dangerous politics, but it's but it's here. I mean, it, it, it is it is it is deeply worrying, isn't it? When you when you explain it in those terms, I mean, there's it seems to me there's a a bunch of our questioners are concerned about Westminster diverting um, government money to uh, red wall constituencies and adjusting the vote that way, but I want to um, just more or less confirm what you just said. One of our guests on a previous show uh, remarked that 60% of men in the UK could identify the silhouette of a Spitfire. No one in Germany could identify the silhouette of a Messerschmitt. Yes, that's, um, that's interesting and um, rings true. Uh, and the obsession with, uh, with World War II, or at least with particular versions of World War II, where the Spitfire is, is, is a very extraordinary thing. If you, we're, we're almost, at, well, we've got about five minutes to go. Are there any particular messages you'd like to leave with us, David? Any particular themes or any particular comments that might summarise or encapsulate your view of looking forward now? Where do you think we're going to be in the medium to long term? Yeah. Well, I, th- I, I think the message is that we are living in a, in a world of possibilities. And both the financial crisis and, and COVID demonstrate that. That's not to say that the financial crisis and COVID would of themselves um, uh, make a better world. In fact, they both made a worse world. Um, but they open up the possibility to, to change things. And I, I think that's what we need. Yeah. And if you are to go back to, to the past, we could choose to go back to to the years from 1945. And that was the, the great theme then, is that collectively we could decide to improve the world. People could legitimately believe that health systems would become better, that education would become better, standard of living would become better, that our, our, our children would have better lives uh, than, 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 than we had. And I think it is possible to, 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 to recapture that sense. 
but to 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 make all all that come true kind of requires i think um a new a new politics um a new commitment to the, the future which is uh which is which is possible though that is not the direction we're going speculate for a second how would this new politics come about who would be the drivers what would be the drive we know what the drivers might be but who might the drivers be who can that, you look to right now and say that's somebody who will take us in that direction you put your finger on the on on the problem but you know, things change in politics things things change sometimes very 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 quickly i mean who'd have thought that scotland would not essentially have a Labour Party or a Conservative Party in, uh, from the perspective of, of, of 1950. Uh, you know, we had UK-wide uh, political parties for decades and decades, and they seemed immovable. They've gone from Scotland. Well, they're still there, uh, but they're, they, 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 are, they are much less powerful. Than they. So, so yes, things, things can change. And um, uh, as I, But as I say, I mean, the... the uh, um, I mean, things are, are, are not presently going in, in the right direction. We have, we have to hope, um, and, and we should, that, um, that, that things, things will change, that, that new forces will, will emerge. We have a question here. Somebody says, if David were living in Scotland, would he vote for Scottish independence? Yes, I would. You would? I would. Unequivocally. Because you, you, would, you would see it as a way of unshackling England to face a different future. Well, first of all, un- unshackling, unshackling Scotland, uh, mm. but also un- unshackling exactly. And, and, and as I say, not not because I think I, I don't mean un- unshackling Scotland from England or England from Scotland. I mean is un- unshackling both England and Scotland from the current arrangements that we respect. That's yeah. the point. Assuming everything worked out the way you would hope i.e. that people would realise a change in direction were necessary. What sort of time frame? This is really taxing now, and I apologise for asking it, but <laughs> I have to ask it. What sort of time frame would you attach to that process? Oh, I don't know, but it, it, it could be a decade. It, 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 could be, it could be less. Okay. Well, it's, that's interesting. Who, who knows? Yeah. If you go back to the, the Scottish uh, example, it probably took about, couple of three, well, maybe two decades. But then there was an SNP, so there was a focus. Yes, uh, yes. It's, it's, so, it, you yes. know, you, you could trace that narrative very straightforwardly. I'm still finding difficulty getting that focus. I'm looking to, to England. Where is that focus? I'm trying to find it right now, and I just yes. don't see it. No, you're, you're not wrong, but uh, um, uh, at, the, at the level of, 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 of political parties, but I, you know, there are there are people uh, discussing the need for a new democratic England for sure, uh, and certainly people are talking about uh, redefining Englishness. Um, good. Uh, oh, that's, so, so that that's is, really is definitely there. Yeah. Excellent. That's that's very good. Thank you, David. Uh, our allotted time is over. I'm afraid I did say it would go fast, and it. And, uh, yes, indeed. It, it generally does. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again. And let me just say by way of rounding up, uh, in addition to a big thank you to David, a big thank you to all of you out there watching and listening. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion as much as I have. Uh, as ever, we have a formidable list of guys, guests lined up for future shows. Uh, if you want to see who's on, simply go to the Indie Live 
www.whatsonguide.scot and you'll see them all listed there. I can tell you, so you don't have to look for next week's guest, it is Dr. Malcolm Petrie from St. Andrews University. And Malcolm is an expert on 20th century uh, Scottish history. So join us next week. And now's the time to get your questions in ahead of that so you can, can make sure that your question gets addressed during the show. And please, another reminder, look out for the Constitution column in the Sunday National. This week it's written by my colleague, Dr. Elliot Boomer, and he'll be discussing whether it's time to junk the DeHaunt system. <laughs> in other words, should we be looking more at STV and less at DeHaunt? I know this sounds terribly technical, but I know many of you have been concerned about the fact that some of the minor parties in Scotland you feel might you might feel are overrepresented. Uh, Alec would take issue with that. He feels a proportional system is as proportional as you can get it. No system is perfect. But read his column on Sunday uh, for more details, please. Oh, and very importantly, support Indie Live, support Indie Live Radio. And the way you can do that, particularly if you've enjoyed the show tonight as much as I have, there is a crowdfunder running right now. Again, you'll find all the details on the What's On Guide. Help run the media. If you don't like the mainstream media, you have an alternative. And it's right here, right in front of you. But it needs your support. Please give it that support. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks again. Join us next Wednesday. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>